lot of our understanding about the universe depends on our ability to measure distances, to know how far away is that star, how far away is that other galaxy. And of course, one of the really interesting discoveries that's been made over the last couple of decades is that our various measurements at different points in the universe don't entirely match up. Uh, and the error bars are not overlapping. And so there's something strange going on. This, of course, is known as the Hubble tension. And I'm kind of obsessed about the Hubble tension right now. And so I wanted to bring on uh, an expert to talk about sort of the current state of the Hubble tension and how we find our way through to resolve this tension, either in the boring way by sort of fixing some fundamental mistake or the really interesting way, which is discovering new physics about the universe. So my guest today is uh, Professor Garrett Lewis, who I've talked to in the past. He's a professor of astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy, and is just an excellent science communicator is able to explain these really complicated topics to me, and then I guess to you. And sort of as a bonus, uh, Garrett recently published a paper which had a really clever idea on how we might be able to measure the change of the expansion of the universe over time, and maybe a hack that we can do it earlier than we were expecting. So we talk about mostly the Hubble tension, but also his research, as well as some sort of general advice for how to be creative and well read in uh, the scientific field like astronomy. So enjoy my interview with Dr. Garrett Lewis. So help me understand, like, what are the tools that you use to kind of wrap your mind around that the farther away things are, the farther we're seeing them back in time, the more, the faster they're expanding away from us? How do you hold all this in your brain? How? Oh, that, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I've I've been a cosmologist now for approaching more than thirty years. And so, you know, it's just part of the job. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you start off and you hear the story about oh, the universe was born in a big bang and it's been expanding for 14 billion years, it sounds like just a, a story, you know, like, like a, a fable that this is how we think the universe behaves. But then, of course, when you, you do the science and you get into the science and you start to unravel all of the different observations. So, you know, this, the picture of the expanding universe, it's, it's 100 years old. And there have just been a mass of different observations that all fit together to show that this picture describes the universe. So, yeah, it, it just seems natural to me now that this is the universe that we live in. And, of course, um, we're always looking at the observations that we're taking and asking, does this fit with this picture? Or are there things which might be telling us that this picture is not completely correct? And and it's the that it's not completely correct. I mean, the, the thing that has sort of really revealed itself more and more over the last, say, decade is this idea of the Hubble tension, these different measurements of the expansion rate of the universe measured at different times. So what sort of pushed that into, okay, there's something we don't understand territory for you? Well, well, so I have to go back again to my starting days as a cosmologist. So, you know, I started back in um, 1990s when I started my PhD. And back then, the Hubble constant was still really uncertain. Um, throughout most of the 20th century, um, cosmologists have been arguing whether it was 50 kilometers per second per megaparsec, our, our unit that we use, or 100. There was a factor of two. 
Uh, but by the end of the 1990s, it, you know, the number had closed into this value of around 70. So, you know, people were kind of happy that we understood the expansion of the universe and we had measured the rate of expansion. But of course, we didn't stop um, when we had measured it to be around 70. People have been doing different measurements and it's been getting um, to more and more accurate values. And of course, in science, it's not just the number that you measure that's important, but it's your uncertainty on that number. Is it, do you know it within 10%, 5%, etc.? So in the 20 odd years since the, um, the, that measurement around 72, everyone's measurements have been getting more and more accurate. Their error bars have been getting smaller and smaller. And there's been this divergence in the value that's been measured. So there's a camp that measures uh, the Hubble constant by using the distance ladder, by basically starting here on Earth and working out into the universe to measure the expansion. And there's the group that uses the cosmic microwave background, which is you know, the, the most distant light that we can see. And you can get the Hubble constant from both of those, and they both claim that they're now measuring it to really high accuracy, but their numbers are different. And the errors are now so small that that difference is significant. And the, the, the big question is, is this, a, uh, is this a sign that we don't understand cosmology properly, that one of the ingredients that we have in our cosmological model isn't quite correct? Or is it a more mundane thing like, you know, there's something gone wrong in the measurement somewhere of how we're calculating the Hubble constant? And people aren't really sure. There are, there are people arguing both ways if it's, if it's significant or not. But it, it is really what, you know, our current mystery. It's the thing that keeps cosmologists up at night. Now, when we build up from the Earth, what is the chain of distances that we're following to get out to, I'm not even sure how far, the, this, this ladder extends? Well, it depends on who you talk to, but it, it extends all the way out into the deepest reaches of the universe. Um, the, the biggest problem we have in cosmology is the universe decided to make things in different sizes and with different brightnesses. So when we look out into the universe and we see a star, we, we don't know if that is a a dim star nearby or a bright star far away without doing extra work. So the, the distance ladder, as, it call, as it's called, is, is a, a series of steps that we use to measure distances in the universe. We start with a nearby universe where we can use the simplest of measurements, which is the parallax. That's the fact that you know, a star can uh, slightly change its position depending upon where the Earth is in its orbit. And so we can measure the distances to those stars by using geometry. And, and everyone's kind of happy that those numbers are very robust. But after that, we have to start calibrating objects. So, and what we mean by that is we have to find a group of objects, a group of stars, say, whose intrinsic brightness we know, and then we can work out how far away they are based upon how bright they appear to our telescopes. And, and that is, you know, that's been a, a long journey over a century for people finding classes of stars that we can say, right, this is something that whose intrinsic brightness that we, we really know, and then using those to map out further distances into the cosmos. And of course, it was uh, like 100 years ago that the, uh, the big breakthrough was made by, um, by various astronomers, but Hubble used the fact that there was a class of variant stars, these Cephids as they're known, that they pulsate, and the rate of their pulsation is tied to how bright they are. And he was to, able to do that first step out 
into the universe, to the Andromeda galaxy. But also famously as well is that he fell into a trap that we have, is that he thought he was looking at one class of star, but he was actually looking at another. And with that, um, with, with that he had actually got the distance to Andromeda incorrect because he thought he was looking at a, a particular class of variant star. So this is, a, this is a, the kind of tricks that we have to do, is you, you, you measure a distance and you find a new calibrator and you use that to measure another distance and you step out into the universe as far as you can go. And of course, what, one of the things that we've been doing is using supernova. These are exploding stars that we can see basically halfway back to the Big Bang. And there's been a lot of work calibrating those. And those are our key distance measure, but they rely on all of the rungs out to, to the distant universe for us to be confident that we've got those distances correct. And so each one of those, I guess, depends on two things. One, that you're right about its intrinsic brightness, and, then, and that the distance ladder that builds up to that point is correct. And that if you're wrong about its intrinsic brightness, if you're wrong about the lower rungs of the ladder, then your estimate, here comes your error bars and they widen again. Yes, absolutely. So if, if, if one, of your, um, one of your rungs has a big error bar, you're not certain about the intrinsic brightness, that propagates its way all the way through to all of the other measurements. So everybody's trying to calibrate everything along the way and trying to make those errors as small as possible. But we still sometimes are, um, you know, we're still sometimes off because there's a, a systematic error, as they say. We don't, we, we've gotten something wrong there. And again, that can disrupt the entire chain. And I mean, I've seen some pretty great meta studies about the distance ladder. And I think there are a lot more objects and techniques in this ladder than people expect. Yes. Dozens? You've been responsible for a few of them? Yeah, well, um, so, so the, the, we have to be, um, you know, kind of careful. There's no one ladder, right? There, there's a whole host of overlapping ladders that people use. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and they're tied together with a bit of string. And you hope that, uh, that, that this, this ladder that you've put together is robust enough out into the distant universe. So yeah, yeah, it, it's a, a whole bunch of different techniques. People are always looking at new calibrators out into the universe. Can we use the size of this kind of galaxy or can we use the brightness of that kind of object? And so the, the people are always looking at a way to get new calibrators. So at the moment, there's the, you know, people are still digging into, um, the data with these things known as things like gamma ray bursts, which are these exceedingly bright bursts across the universe. Can we turn those into a standard flash that we can use to chart cosmology? So yeah, it, it's a it's a never ending journey. Um, but yeah, it's uh, one of those things where people are always trying to tie down and make sure that the error bars are as small as possible. I, I mean, I think about... Um you know, the mainstays, as you said, you've got the parallax, you've got astrometry missions like Gaia. Yeah. Um, you've got the Cepheid variables, which people understand quite well. And and then you've got like the type 1A one, type one supernovae and and as sort of the the anchors to this ladder. Yeah. 
but I do, I can sort of, I imagine in my mind this sort of weird patchwork ladder that's made of 40 rungs that's up, you know, and different ones are in, in different places, but they're all, you know, people are constantly testing the two rungs against each other to make Absolutely. sure that they, they do, they do line up. But then there's been a bunch more that are, so what are some interesting ladders that have come out recently, rungs in the ladder, that you find really interesting? Well, well, there's a there's a few even older ones that aren't really spoken about that much. There's there's things like um, surface brightness fluctuations. I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, but you know this is this is essentially that um, if you imagine that you've got a, a galaxy, well, we look at say Andromeda, our neighboring galaxy, and we can see the bright stars in Andromeda. But if you look at a galaxy which is further away, that brightness sort of all starts to wash out until they're very distant, and then they're just a fuzzy blob. So in fact, the um, people have calculated that if you have galaxies and they've got bright stars, you will see a sort of rippling pattern in their brightness. And that pattern sort of diminishes the further away a galaxy is. And so people have been using surface brightness fluctuations, which I think is a really cool method. I, I, that's one of my um, favorite ones to sort of think about is that you, you're counting bright stars. Um, and I said the, the other one, there's been some recent claims that um, objects like quasars, these exceedingly bright, uh, you know, supermassive black holes with material swirling around, that people are starting to find some sort of trends in their properties that suggest that maybe there's a hook there that we could use those as standard candles. And they, they, they're very important because we can see those back to, you know, 90% um, the age of the universe, we can see quasars. So if we could really say that we could work out their intrinsic brightness, they would really unravel a lot of the sort of details of cosmology. You're getting back almost to the point where you are getting your cosmic microwave background measurements. So you've pushed the ladder all the way out to where the cosmologists are measuring Hubble's constant. So yeah, as I said, there's, there's lots, of, lots of interesting objects. I think that though that, that there will be many more coming on to the table over the next decade or so, because we are getting things like, you know, the, the Vera Rubin Observatory, they're going to be monitoring the sky over and over again. We are going to find new kinds of objects that have properties in their variations that we will think, oh, maybe this mm. is telling us that this could be a standard candle. And like the Cepheid variable, how it changes in brightness over time, or like there's the uh, the double R or Yes. Stars. Yeah. Um, what impact has gravitational waves had on this? Well, uh, again, now this is this is an interesting question. People are asking whether or not um, gravitational waves are, uh, they don't call them standard candles, they call them standard sirens, right? Because they, right. you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a ripply wave and, and you can turn it into sound and it, it, it sounds like a, a, you know, a chirp, etc. But the thing is, is that if we imagine that we understand the physics of what's going on in that um, merger event that creates the black hole, uh, creates the gravitational waves. So often it's a pair of black holes or it's a pair of neutron stars. If you imagine that we say to ourselves, we really understand the physics here, right? Neutron stars are supposed to have a certain mass and they collide in a certain way. Then we can, at some level, work out how much energy is released in that uh, merger event as a as a total brightness and then comparing that to what we measure here on earth then we, we can chart that distance out to where that uh, merger event took place 
Of course, um, what we really need to do is we need to tie that merger event to something that we can see. Uh, because uh, measuring a distance to an object that we can't see doesn't really tell us very much. So we need to sort of see these events occur inside a galaxy so we can also see the starlight as well. And that will allow us to sort of chart across the universe. The problem that we have at the moment is that we've got to get to that stage where we say to ourselves, right, I've seen this signal in the gravitational wave and from this signal, I know what merged. I know that they were a pair of black holes and they've got this mass ratio and all this kind of thing. And we're not quite there yet, but we're, uh, you know, the black hole uh, physicists are telling us that we're getting close, right? That we, we, we are really starting to um, find the fine detail in the sort of gravitational waves that we can see. And of course, with more gravitational wave detectors and, uh, and always the, the, you know, reducing the error bars, increasing the signal, we, we, we will get there kind of soonish. This is what I'm told, at least. Right, right. Do you think it has the potential to become one of these gold standards for measuring distance in the universe? Um, yeah, at the moment, I, I, I think so. It's, it's a question of, again, getting the cleanest signal possible, such that, again, you can say to yourself, I really know what happened in that merger, that it was a black hole of 20 solar masses and a black hole of 10 solar masses, and they merged with this property because that produces this signature. I think, yeah, it has the potential to, be, to, to get there. So, so I guess those are some of the, I guess the parts of the ladder. Yeah. And then let's go to the other side, which is the, the measurement of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yes. And I guess the most accurate version of this is the recent survey from the Planck satellite. What is the technique that the astronomers are using to pull out this expansion rate from that data? Yeah. So it's, it's a very um, it's it's a very interesting kind of kind of story, right? I mean, the important thing is is that the cosmic microwave background isn't just smooth. So what what, what happened if you imagine that you, you had the universe forming um, the Big Bang, and just after the birth of the universe, the universe was kind of smooth. Uh, there was hydrogen, helium, and dark matter just spread around. So that stuff was there, but there are tiny ripples. In the, in the distribution of material, which come from the, an earlier epoch in the universe. They come from inflation. Uh, and so you've got these tiny ripples there. And what happens, of course, is that if you've got ripples, if you've got more mass in one place than the other, the place with more mass has a stronger gravitational attraction and starts to draw material in. So over the first few hundred thousand years of the universe, when it was still hot, it was still a plasma, dark matter sort of started to collapse together to form the seeds of the galaxies we see today. And the matter and radiation basically came along for the, for the ride, right? They, they get drawn in as well. So it's this hot plasma, so there are no normal atoms yet. It's just uh, charged particles and radiation all bouncing around. The dark matter starts to collapse uh, into itself. The, the plasma comes along, but starts to bounce Right, you, you, so dark matter sort of has this property that it's called collisionless. The the material basically just goes through itself, but gas, even in a plasma, they they basically can bounce off other bits of plasma. So it set up these waves in the universe. So there's these ripples that run through the plasma until around the around four hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. 
And at that point, the universe cooled to such an extent that the, the electrons could rejoin with the protons and you form the first hydrogen atoms. And that, that changes the dynamics of the gas in the universe. But those ripples are still imprinted on that gas. And that imprint gets written into the cosmic microwave background radiation. So places where there was more gas, you, get, you see at one temperature, and places where there was less gas, you see another temperature. And the differences in the amount of material aren't huge, but they go on to form the galaxies that we can see today. So you can imagine the cosmic microwave background, there's this rippling all the way across the cosmic microwave background, and that rippling is tied to how that material was moving around in the first few hundred thousand years. So when we look at the cosmic microwave background from our vantage point on Earth, we're seeing this map written across the sky, but we're seeing it in terms of how big it looks in terms of the angles that we can see on the sky. So some ripples are this big, other ripples are smaller, etc. And so we can actually use our understanding of the physics of the early universe to work out what those ripples looked like to how we are seeing them here on Earth today. And that reveals the expansion of the universe in terms of the rate of expansion, but also the geometry of the universe. Because, you know, universes can be, um, they can have different geometries. And what these observations reveal is that we actually live in what's known as a flat universe. And, and so, yeah, the, the cosmological one is, is sort of like a, a single snapshot view of the cosmic microwave background, and that reveals how uh, our universe has been expanding since that 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So, I mean, I understand that, like, the overdensities and underdensities that we see in the cosmic microwave background, those are analogous to the giant galaxy clusters that we see around us today. And, you know, they're not the same thing when we see a big, you know, a slight overdensity in the cosmic microwave background, we know that that one day will become a giant galaxy cluster yes. when all of those galaxies get their act together. Um, the, the part that I have trouble with is, is like, like, like my assumption was always like, okay, we know what wavelength of light was released by the cosmic microwave background radiation. We know how long it's been traveling to us. We could calculate the redshift, but that's not how they're doing this, right? No, no. They're, so they're measuring these angles in these anisotropies, in these, these over and under density, density regions, and yeah, that yes. gets us to the age. Yeah, uh, yes. So imagine that you're... Um, that you're near an ocean, right? And you can see waves rippling on the ocean, but you, you don't know how far away you are from the ocean. You can just see the waves. Uh, but somebody comes, and, comes to you and says to you, oh, those waves, they're all five meters across. And you say to yourself, ah, now, now I know those waves are five meters across. From the size that I see that wave, I can work out how far away I am right. from the wave. And so it's geometry again. It's geometry again. So in, right. in cosmology, it's that, that geometry of how things look on the sky that tells us how the universe has evolved from 400,000 years to today. But of course, this is dependent upon whether or not you, you really understand the physics of all that plasma sloshing around in the early universe. Um, and of course, the, the, uh, the cosmic microwave background people tell us, yes, we understand that very, very well. Uh, and because, you know, we see, it, it's, not just, it, it's not just a single wave that we see, 
what we're seeing is a combination of waves of different wavelengths. And so we've got so many of this wavelength, so many of this wavelength, so many of this wavelength. And that's what we see on the sky. And actually written into the local galaxy distribution. Those waves are still imprinted on the galaxies, uh, the distribution of galaxies we see around us today. So that, that's why the cosmic wave background people, the cosmologists are very confident that we have, we've understood that physics. Yeah, they, they seem very certain. Oh, yes. Um, yes. You know, you talk to them and they're like, we're right. Yeah, yes, yes. So, and, and, so, and they, like to, they like to point at the distance ladder and just go, look at all those rungs that you guys are taking. We've just got this one step into the universe. Right. Look how cool we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on the one hand, you've got this pristine measurement. And on the other hand, you've got this 40-runged ladder with astronomers checking and double-checking and cross-verifying and, and questioning each other's results. Yes. And, and it would be fine if the results matched, but they don't. They and don't. And so here we are. Right. Yes. So yes. let's go with the boring version of this, which is that somebody made a mistake. Yes. So... We look. We we know we know that people can get fooled in their their uh, their distance measurement. I, I, I'm I'm, I'm going to be very uh, careful about the word "fooled." There, right? I I, right. I don't want to get across that they're being slapdash. What I want to get across is that these th these measurements are hard. It, this is a hard right. job to do, and people who work in all this calibration stuff. When you read their papers and you read about all of the calibration tests that they have to do, but then you realize, well. They made an assumption here, and maybe that assumption has impacted something there. And if they had made a slightly different assumption, that would change things. So they said there's there's this constant cross-referencing, not only up the ladder, but across the ladders as well. And we know that there are systematic things going on. Uh, but the people that are proposing um, that we have a real tension from the the distance measurements, they have gone back and they, they said, oh, you know, they've checked the rungs and they are confident that the uncertainty that they've put on their measurement of the Hubble constant is correct, right? And, 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 and um, of course, the errors are getting, getting quite small, such that even, even if there's a very small error somewhere, the hope is that, that that doesn't propagate into a big error in the final measurement. But there's still that possibility there, right? I mean, as I said, there are so many checks and assumptions and bits and pieces that are done. And in this centuries-long sort of journey that, you know, you need to go and go check every single step to make sure that people are correct in their measurements. And is there like a linchpin measurement or assumption that things are resting on. I mean, to go back to your analogy of like, you know, you're standing up the on the cave and you see the waves and the person says, oh, those waves are five meters high and you go, oh, okay, then I know how far away they are. And then you go down and you go, you know, I'm just gonna double check and you go down and you're like, oh, it's 5.1 meters yeah. high. Yes. And then they go, oh yeah, well, you know, it's close enough, right? You're yeah. like, no, no, that, that, that solves the tension right there yes. by that small amount. Yes, yes. Um, I would say that there's not a single linchpin, right? In the sense that um, it, it could be anywhere along along the, the chain, right? So as you mentioned, you know, the, the ones that we are most certain on are the geometric measurements and, you know, using parallax and now using Gaia, etc. But all the way out, all the other measurements, 
you know, people are, um, have been beating down the errors. And I said, there's always this cross-referencing going on. We know that in places there are some things which do seem slightly out and, and people are looking at why that's the case. But again, the, the uh, Hubble constant people who have measured it through the distance ladder, they're pretty certain that they have nailed down all of the possibilities where there could be a single, right, if this is wrong, then this is going to spoil everything kind of thing. They're very confident that there isn't a systematic error somewhere in their chain. Now, um, other people have gone and looked at this and some agree, some have pointed to some places going, well, maybe we need to look at this. So it's not a settled story, but you know, it's not obvious where that, er that error would come from. I mean, if we had the, the size of the Earth's orbit wrong, uh, or yeah. if we you know, didn't understand the wavelength of, you know, black body radiation from the cosmic microwave background radiation. Like either one of those are the foundation of both of these distance measurements, right? But we yeah. know the distance to the, from the earth to the sun pretty well. Yes. Yes. So, so things like that, the distance from the earth to the sun, the, the, uh, the, the, the cosmic microwave background being a black body, of course, what we have discovered is the cosmic microwave background is the most perfect black body there is. It's better than anything we can produce on Earth. And it, it, it agrees with the, the equation that Planck wrote down 125 years ago. Um, so those foundational things, uh, I don't think people are, are worried about, right? I think at, at that base level, I think that's fine. Uh, but I think the, the, the worry might be in, oh, this, uh, you know, the, the, the usual suspects as supernova, right? Uh, and there's always this big question about whether or not there's evolution in the supernova explosions. And what I mean by that is that in the local universe, we have more of the heavier elements in stars. There's less in the earlier supernova. And, and does that change the supernova explosion by a couple of percent? Now, again, this, if you look at the, the people that write the supernova papers and look at all of the calibration they do, they sort of say to you, look, where? Where is it in here? Um, but you, you, know, you need to go back and, and keep looking over and over again. There have been lots of proposals about uh, maybe it's extinction. You know, dust in the universe is, is distorting the view of the distant universe, and people have tested for that and say, no, it can't be there at this level. So again, it's a, it's a very complicated sort of story. Again, the picture of a ladder yeah, seems kind of nice and simple and linear, but it's not. It's a twisty, turny, messy kind of thing. Um, but it said nothing jumps out as being the single place where this is the source of your error. But it could be. There could be systematics and then about um, the, the, the earlier universe is, is different to today's universe and maybe that is having an effect. Right. Um, so then let's go with the more exciting possibility. Um, what could create a change in the, I guess, the expansion rate of the universe at different times that you measure it? Yeah, so the, the only, if, it, if that is the source, then the, the, the obvious culprit is dark energy, okay? So in our standard cosmological picture, we, we you know, it, since the end of the 90s, we, we know that we've needed this component in the universe, dark energy, which is uh, driving the accelerated expansion of the universe. 
Now, one of the assumptions that is within our standard model is that dark energy is, is a constant. It doesn't change over the life of the universe. It's the same stuff. It was the same stuff just after the Big Bang as it is today. It's just becoming more dominant today. But some have wondered, what if dark energy is not a constant? What if it changes its spots over the life of the universe? And it doesn't have to change its spots that much. It just changes its, its particular properties between the cosmic microwave background observations and out to where the distance ladder is reaching, which is roughly half the age of the universe. Um, and then if, if that's the case, then that means that dark energy is not the stuff that we think it is. It is even more complicated. It is even more mysterious. It leads to even more headaches than it just existing in the universe in the first place. Um, but, you know, people are, are somewhat wary to go down that track in, in, in that what is dark energy if it can change its spots, right? If it, if it, if it can, then it is, it is a substance in the universe that we really, really do not understand. Yeah, I mean, we don't know anything about it apart from being able to measure its presence in the universe yes. based on the way it's made type 1a supernovae appear to be moving away faster than they ought to at different times in the universe. I mean, that is not a lot to hang a lot of knowledge on, yeah. and yet it is so present, like it's hard to ignore. It's the elephant in the room, yes. and yet it's a very, you know, invisible elephant. Um, yeah. So, and it sounds like whatever bizarreness dark energy was up to, it was happening at a time which is very difficult for us to observe in the universe. Yeah, yes. After the cosmic microwave background, but, bef but before the most distant objects that we can really measure the expansion of the universe on. Yes, exactly. So, so, th so this is why one of the things like if we can get um, standard candles in like quasars that go back to 90% the age of the universe, then this will shed light on whether or not dark energy was doing something weird in that period and is different to uh, what we think it is today. Um, yeah, so who knows? Who knows what it was doing, right? Because we, we are in, in Wild West territory in that we have a set of observations, but we can play the theoretical game as fast and loose as we want to, as long as, you know, as, as long as we get, uh, agree with the Hubble uh, measurements from the two camps, then what dark energy could be fluctuating up and down. It could be collapsing and expanding. It could be doing lots of weird things in, in that epoch, um, but we don't have the observations to constrain it. So it's, it's frustrating at one level, but it's exciting at another level. So, yeah. But, but we don't see this happening for, say, 5 billion years. I'm not sure what like, the most distant Type 20 supernovae is in the 5 billion. Yes, it's, it's of that order. Yeah, yeah, light year range. So, you know, as you said, maybe the quasars get you out to 12 billion. Yes. Which would be great. Yeah. Um, and some provisional observations have been made of quasars where people have been attempting to use them as a distance scale. You would, I mean, whatever dark energy was doing, it would be sort of wild. And then just as we started to be able to detect its changes, it settled down and stopped this nonsense. That seems weird. That seems convenient to me. 
Um, um, so do we see a hint of this in the Quasar data? At the moment, I would say the Quasar data is not robust enough to really constrain mm. what dark energy is doing. So the, the, the issue is, is that um, when you look at a quasar, right, you see a bright dot and it's varying and qu people are questioning whether or not it's brightness and it's distribution of energy and it's uh, all, all the properties. So you imagine that you've, you've, you've got, collect all the properties, you put them in a bag and you swirl them around and you try and look, what can I use as a calibrator? And at the moment, there's a little bit of grasping at straws. You know, is it, is it the slope of the brightness at this wavelength and this kind of thing without true physical motivation for why that would be a calibrator, something that you could use to standardize your quasars. So at the moment, as I said, it, it's a little bit um, fast and loose. I think though we are heading into territory where people are starting to truly get a grasp on the properties of quasars um, in, this, in the sense that we are really starting to understand I'll be careful with my words. Quasars are complicated objects, so we are starting to understand, you know, what the mechanisms are for producing the energy, etc. Um, so in the future, I'm hoping that what we will find is that the uh, we will be able to mathematically predict what a quasar looks like, and then use that prediction to say intrinsically these this is what I think this quasar is doing, and I can use this as my distance measurement. But I don't think we're there at the moment. Right, right. So let's so let's talk about the new toys then that are coming online. And and I want to talk sort of connect this directly to a paper that you did fairly recently. Um, let's talk about this idea of redshift drift. Mm -hmm. What is it? So the the redshift drift is a in my mind is a beautiful idea. It actually was first proposed by Sandage way back in the nineteen sixties, right? And so the thing is, is that we live in an expanding universe, which means that the universe today is different to the universe yesterday. But the time scale over which the universe changes by an appreciable amount is long. It's, you know, it's that time scales of hundreds of millions to billions of years for something to really happen. So what Sandage noted is that when we look at a distant object in the universe, we see its light redshifted, okay, due to the expansion of space. But if I come back tomorrow and measure its redshift, that redshift will have changed because the universe will have expanded by a tiny amount more in one day. So the question is, is how long do I have to wait to measure the change in the redshift of a distant object? And, you know, when Sandage originally wrote this paper back in the 1960s, it was... Now, given our, our observational um, capabilities back then, you, you really are talking about waiting a century, right? Um, yeah, so, to, and, and, and that, that was an optimistic view. But by the 1990s, things had changed, and one of the things that had changed, kind of perversely, it got nothing to do with the expanding universe at all. It's the discovery of planets around other stars, right? So, you know, people measured the presence of planets by looking at the velocity shifts, right? How do stars wobble due to the presence of planets? And, and there you want to get your velocity measurements down from kilometers per second to meters per second to centimeters per second. And so people were saying, right, with this new technique, I can measure the change in velocity of a star down to these tiny values. And then people realize, oh, well, 
if we don't look at stars, but look at distant objects, can we start to suggest that we can measure the redshift drift? And so Avi Loeb back in 98, I think it was, basically rebirthed this topic and said, actually, we can, you know, we are getting to the stage where maybe over 20 years, we can measure the, the, the redshift drift, i.e. that the fact that the, the redshifts of objects in the universe are changing due to the fact that we've got this expansion going on. And so... so and Oh, and I was going to, you know, I, I pulled some some numbers out. I, I think it was out of your paper or Brian Coberline wrote an article about it and he's fairly knowledgeable about the topic as well. And so he had said that that if you looked at a galaxy and you're seeing the light that's taken, say, 12 billion years to reach us, is this your, I don't know if this is your information, it would have, um, it's moving at, say, 90% the speed of light from our perspective. And so mm -hmm. you're seeing this, this enormous redshift. And each year you would be adding about uh, 15 centimeters, I think, or something like that. Over yeah. 10 years, you'd be adding like 15 centimeters of, of velocity per second to yeah. this. So you're at, you're at, you know, 90% of 300,000 kilometers per second, and you're adding, you know, a couple of centimeters a year yeah. per second to this velocity. That's hard to it, measure it, that change. It is. And so um, the, the, the redshift drift is, it, it, the redshift drift measurement is not really looking at one object and trying to measure that 15 centimeters per second. What you do is you look at a whole host of objects, right? And so um, like what, uh, as proposed by Loeb and, and some of these experiments that are being proposed is what you do is you look at a distant quasar, right? Again, so really bright uh, source of light in the universe. And you look at its light and it will have come through clouds of hydrogen through the universe. So its spectrum has this thing called the Lyman Alpha Forest. It's all these absorption lines in there. So you can end up with thousands and thousands of these lines. And each of these lines will be shifted due to the redshift drift. So what you try and do is instead of doing a measurement of one object, you measure 10,000 lines of sight to that object and 10,000 to that object and 10,000 to that and that and that and that. And so you hope that you can build up the statistics. So it's not relying on one measurement, but you see the, the overall shift when you measure the, you know, the velocities of thousands and thousands of, of, of these hydrogen clouds. It's interesting to me that that, that, that number, that 15 centimeters per second does line up kind of nicely to I think like to be able to see another earth orbiting around a sunlit star it's like 50 centimeters per year of yeah. 50 centimeters per second of acceleration of the of the the star moving towards you and away from you and that you're in this same regime and so I could see why that's your people are like, like what else could we get done with being able to detect changes in brightness or changes in redshift with that kind of of level and I think Again, you know, if our reporting is correct, um, you know, when the European Extremely Large Telescope comes online, these are the kinds of observations it could make over a decade, say, of, yes. of really putting its back into it. Yes. yes. So th th this is um, one of the big exciting things that people are proposing. So we need a big telescope because it's, it's a statistics game, right? That's what it comes down to. And so you want to collect the most signal with the least noise possible, such that you can measure these velocities very, very accurately, right? 
So the, the, they want to put um, spectrograph on these big telescopes to measure these velocities. But the challenge is, is not really the cosmological challenge, it's the technological challenge. How do you keep a spectrograph stable for a decade? Because what you don't want is your, your spectrograph to get you know, slightly, you know, slightly wonky or whatever over that period and, and basically destroy your measurement. So that is, a, that is a really big challenge that people have. Is, um, and it is for the planetary people as well, right? They, they, they need the same kind of thing. So the technological challenge of saying that your spectrograph is, is the same today as it was a decade ago is, is a really, really difficult problem to solve. But that's why there's big international consortia involving the astronomers, but also, of course, the instrument people thinking about what it is that we need to do to, to do these ultra-precise measurements over these immense timescales. And you look at the work done by, say, the folks with LIGO to make these observations of gravitational waves, and many people thought this is not possible mm -hmm. for you to detect Yes, this small of a change. And yet, here we are now, third run into it, each time better and better electronics and technique and mirrors, and they're abusing quantum mechanics to get better data out of this. It's amazing. Yes. And, and so you can see, you know, it's a kind of incredible, like just when humanity puts his mind to these kinds of problems, they really want the result. So, but, but the prize, what does, you know, we're 20 years down the road and you've got your data, you've got the redshift drift, you're looking at it. What is it telling you? You're seeing the qua the light from the quasars, how those quasars are changing in their expansion away from us. What story would that be telling you? So um, one of the beautiful things about measuring the redshift drift, so, so firstly, right, it's another handle on cosmology, right? But it's a different viewpoint on cosmology. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's a very... The picture that you get is uh, you, you will basically be able to see the expansion of the universe as we go out and look further and further away. And what we have is that as we uh, look at different objects, because the light is, is taking time to get here, the nearby objects, they are the ones that are accelerating away from us. So we, we know that their, their velocities are increasing. The more distant ones relative to our viewpoint now, are still slowing down, right? We're seeing them in the, when they were in that phase of the universe when it was slowing. So when we get the redshift drift results, what we're going to see is that um, the nearby objects are, are accelerating away from us. We actually go through a sweet spot where objects are basically stationary with respect to us. And then further away, we see objects which are still slowing down with respect to us. So that curve that we get that is going to be a, a, an ultra-precise probe of, of the makeup of the universe. It shows that our, our nearby universe is accelerating, the distant universe is decelerating, which is what we expect from our, our cosmological model as we understand it. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it, does, it, maybe it shows something else, right? Like you were saying about what, what if dark energy was playing up in the first five billion years? It would be imprinted somewhere in this signal, right? Um, but it's, you know, the, the first measurements are going to be um, uh, like 
a, a data point here and a data point here and a data point here. And somebody will say, oh, it's consistent with this kind of picture. But imagine that in, instead of a decades measurements, we've got five decades measurements and we've now got a whole bunch of data points. And it'll be the precision curve that goes through that that will tell us is dark energy a constant? Is it changing? What, when did the acceleration really start? When did the, how big was the deceleration, etc.? So it will be a, a different look at the way the universe is expanded. So you've got a hack. And this is sort of like the whole point of this whole interview is for us to lay all the foundation of, about the crisis in cosmology, about redshift drift, all of this to get to your clever idea in the paper that you and your team released uh, in the last couple of days. So what's your what's your clever trick to get us that redshift drift data early? Okay, so um, th this is a paper that uh, I, I wrote with one of my students, uh, Chengyi. So, um, so we we asked ourselves, what if you were impatient? Right? What if you didn't want to wait a decade to make this measurement? Can we essentially make the redshift drift measurement, but with, let's say, a couple of weeks worth of data rather than waiting for, for, for 10 years? So we thought, well, what we need to do is we need something else to make up for that time difference. Okay, so um, we, we don't want to wait a decade, but can we sort of find a cheat in the universe that, that, that has that time difference in there? So what we realized is that we can use um, gravitational lenses to, to basically speed up the measurement. So uh, you know, a gravitational lens is where you've got a massive object in the universe, you've got a source located behind there, and you get multiple light paths between the source and us here on Earth. So we can see multiple images of uh, objects out into the universe. And of course, some of the images, images we've recently gotten from James Webb of galaxy clusters with thousands of lens images in there, right? So the entire background universe is distorted with respect to uh, how we would have seen it with, without that um, cluster there. Now, one of the nice things about gravitational lensing is that the time it takes light to travel along those paths can be different for different paths. So there's this famous way of measuring the Hubble constant, which is looking at the time delay in uh, lensed images. So you look at one image, you see a flash, you wait a year, you see a flash in the other image, and that time delay is tied to the expansion of the universe. And so we said, oh, well, we, again, we don't want to wait, but then we thought, hang on, if we look today, so we look at the light from two images today, and we go back to the source, then that light must have left the source at two different times to arrive today at our telescope. And we realized that, that, that those different times, that means that the universe expanded a little bit back then between the two emissions. And so we asked, oh, is the redshift drift written into the redshift difference that we would see today? I, the, the two images are slightly different redshifts due to the fact that their light set out at slightly different times. And so what is sort of the maximum gap that you would get from the, the two journeys or the end journeys that this light might take? Yeah. Years, uh, decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years? So the, um, for, for a galaxy cluster, and you, you know, we go big clusters because the, the bigger the cluster, the bigger the geometry and all that kind of stuff. We are looking at, at decade scale differences. That's the kind of size that we want. 
smaller clusters, you get smaller differences. That makes the redshift difference smaller, etc. You get all the way down to individual galaxies and the numbers become ridiculously small. So we would have to target the big clusters, but of course, that's the kind of thing that people are observing anyway. And so we went through and we basically churned the numbers and asked if, if, if we get our 40 meter telescopes and they build the instruments to look for the redshift drift, then you can also look for this instantaneous redshift difference so that um, you, know, you can go out there and we, we should be able to see it. Again, it's a, it's a numbers game in the sense that you're not, not really gonna just look at one uh, object. You're gonna have to look at lots of the lensed images and build up those statistics, but that difference should be there. So yeah, we, we made that proposal and it seems to work, uh, which is good for Chengi because it's part of his PhD thesis, of course. Um, but yeah, I, we, we are now digging into the, the, the technical aspects again of, of what, exactly what kind of observations you want to make. And so, you know, we, we, in the paper we just had accepted, we already, how much light do you get from a galaxy? How accurately can we measure the, the velocities? How big a difference can we see? But it seems to be within our grasp. And again, it's still a, you know, a 40 meter telescope is still a few years off. So we will refine our approach and hopefully make robust predictions for when the telescopes are, are actually looking at the sky. I mean, already say with JWST, with the Jade survey, they are finding these enormous galaxy clusters. There's yes. this El Gordo one with a bunch of gravitational lenses all clustered around it. And by 2027 the hope should be that they've they've put in front of you they've found five or six really beefy galaxy clusters that have some gravitational lenses that you can use for that yeah. i love i love this idea even like for the supernovae where you see this supernovae go off once and then you see it go off again in each one of these lenses you know and you can see this thing over time in a snapshot and you know the next time it's going to go off and so if you could see that galaxy well enough, you could see the precursor to the supernova. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You're, right. you're basically getting a time machine for free. This is, yeah. uh, this is effectively what you're doing, right? You, you see something happen and you go, oh, look in the other image, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and it, in your mind, that seems to break the laws of physics that you should be able to do that. But, you know, Einstein's wibbly wobbly universe, that's the kind of observations you can make. So what would be like, Let's say that the entire planet decided the thing they were going to do was solve the Hubble tension. They were going to get to the bottom of this mystery and they were going to allocate whatever funds were necessary to build the perfect machine to make observations. Do you think that we have the theoretical framework to direct that kind of engineering activity? You know, do you think we know quasars well enough to to build a super web, or do you think that we're ready? And if we could just build a you know a JWST with ten thousand meter primary mirror, that would get the job done? Or is there some other wavelength that you would want to look in? Oh, I mean, that's a tricky question. I I I I do not think that it would be a single kind of facility that you could build that could do everything. In reality, you know, what you would want, if, if you were really wanted to do this, you would go back to step one, and which people are doing. You take all of the, the Gaia um, distances that you've got from geometry, because that we trust. 
and you go through and you calibrate all of the stars that you've got. So you really know that this star does this, that star does that. And you would redo the ladder and you, and it, every step of the way, and you would, you would do it with your, your best facility that you have. And you would make sure that you have, in terms of observations and calibrations, that you nail it at every single step so there can be no, uh, no claim that, you know, you, you've got a systematic error here or there. And, you, you know, you, it's all laid out from woe to go. But that is a big job to go and recalibrate the entire mm. universe. So, so you're talking about like a super Gaia, a, and then a some kind of Cepheid variable analyzer, yeah. and then and then a sort of JWST that's able to pick out Cepheid variables in galaxies that are five billion light years away, right? Yeah. Like that's the yeah yeah you do that, and then you also then play the game of you. You find every supernova, so you need to go back and you need to survey the entire sky over and over again. Every supernova you find, you get as much information as possible. So, you know, it, it really, it, it, it's a numbers game. It's a statistics game. It's the story that the media doesn't like to talk about, that there's so much stats involved in science. But that's what it is. It, it, it's it's right. all, all about how confident am I that this measurement I have made is this number and this uncertainty. And so again, it's it's all a numbers game. You advise a lot of people, and you know a lot of your papers. As I said, I'm I'm looking at your list here so far. I think I see twenty plus papers just in twenty three. Um, what advice do you have for people who want to become astronomers, cosmologists, who are fascinated by this by this mystery? What what do you think are some productive places to put your energy into it? Well, so I, I was talking to some students the other day about this. Uh, so I, I think the the key thing about my approach to science, at least, is is firstly not to be too blinkered, is to try and see the bigger picture. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, absorb what lots of people are doing. The, uh, the ability to change science by taking an idea from one area and applying it to another. And also the, the notion that you can take mathematics from one area and apply it to another. And we are seeing this, of course. We, I mean, I don't have to tell people about the growth of, of AI and things like that. So, so it, it's, it's the ability to have a broad view and think about this problem over here would benefit from me approaching it from that over there. And you only get that kind of picture by not being solely focused in a particular area. So it, it, it is that, that, that broad view that, that I encourage in my students. It's not, it's not for everybody. Some people like their particular view, but you find that you generally do what everybody else is doing. But the big shakeups come when you can bring something new from outside into an area. And I said, we, we, are, we are seeing this uh, all the time. There's been a growth in, again, the media don't really want to talk about this, but the, the way we approach our statistics in things like astronomy has evolved very rapidly over the last couple of decades. And we are tackling questions that we didn't think we could do because we have a new way of thinking about the data. So yeah, it's, it's having that broad toolkit, knowing what's going on and thinking about what tool do I apply here to, to basically push this field forward? 
I mean, there are a few researchers out there that I, when I see their name on a paper, I'll read it because, and, and, you know, you mentioned that sort of the idea of the redshift drift and that Avi Loeb had sort of, you know, Avi Loeb sort of moves in that same sort of world for me, mm -hmm. um, which is just out of the box thinking, just coming up with like, just going like, what if, right? Yeah. And then following an idea through until the math, till you finish the math and then set that paper aside and then move on to some other idea. And do you, do you find, like, what does it take to get you excited enough about an idea to throw some time at it and, and participate? And what, what role do you typically find yourself playing? Um, I, I like to just, I said, I like to read and ponder where the, the problems and sort of mysteries are and then think about how I would approach it. And, but but it, 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 interestingly, it's a long game, right? There are some problems that I still have swirling around in my head that have been there for two decades. And I haven't, I haven't found the approach to how I would deal with that problem yet. So again, it's, it's uh, an appreciation of where, the f where fields are at and what the questions are. And for me, there, there, are, there are many of these sort of uh, places where you hear your, um, a story about somebody's done X and it, do you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to match what we expect. Have a quick read, have a think, and then store it away. And then said, you never know when you will read something else and think, oh, hang on. I sort of remember a while ago reading about. So again, it's, it, I, I, I like to read broadly and I like to read outside of my comfort zone uh, and, and to get an appre appreciation of what's going on. I can't say I'm good at solve problems across all of that, but I, I, I do like to have that broad view of what's happening, and at least in the astronomy side and the math side as well. My mom always used to say, like my mom was like really good at technology. And, and, you know, surprisingly good at technology for somebody who was, you know, previous, you know, generation. Um, and, and she'd always say, there's got to be a way. And for her, that was very much like, you know, I need to get this document to accept that spreadsheet. And mm -hmm. I know that somehow through all of these, um, you know, right clicking and reading through the manuals and copy pasting, there's going to be a way that this will do what I needed to do. And so it's, so it's, a, it's about discovering the way and not so much about, you know, the way is there. It's just our job to discover it. And mm -hmm. I, and I think that's the kinds of stuff that I trigger on. Like when I'm reading through archive, I'm reading through a journal and it feels to me like, like somebody takes a mystery and says, gotta be away like here's this thing we don't know how this works we, we don't even know how to get any more data on this and then somebody says there's got to be a way and then that is the seed of of an idea yeah and i'm sure 99 of the time people look at it and go that, that that's not going to work like thank you for thinking that one through but it's not going to yeah. work because yeah, of all yeah. these reasons and every now and then someone goes wait a minute that's yeah. exactly what i need for this thing that i'm doing over here thank you for putting in the math yeah, yeah. To give me a, so, a way to move forward. I, and I, I think there's a, an aside in there that some people forget about doing science, right? Now and again, you're wrong. And you can go down a path and you think I've got an idea to solve something and you're wrong. You, you get there and it's like, I haven't solved this. Uh, uh, but that's not 
that sort of failure of being a scientist, that's part of the job is now and again getting to that point and going, oh, but I've never found any path that I've wandered down. I've never found it a waste of time because you've learned something, you've filed it away and it will come useful one day. Fantastic. Well, Garrett, it was a pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to explain uh, our modern concept of the Hubble tension to me. If people want to follow your work, uh, buy your books, what's the best place to do that? Um, well, I, I think I'm one of the last astronomers still on Twitter because I haven't, oh no, X or whatever it's called. So I'm yeah. cosmic underscore horizons. One day I, I will move off there and, and find out. Come over to Mastodon. We're having a great time. I, every, there's too many choices now, right? There's Mastodon, there's Blue I Sky. I just don't know where to go. I so I'll, I will get there eventually. Um, I do have a website, which I, I'm getting back into updating, which is just gerrandflewis.com. Uh, books are available on Amazon. Uh, they make wonderful presents uh, and help pay off my mortgage. So, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Well, and when you solve the Hubble tension, will you let me know? Um, I will let you know, and I will also let Wonderful. you know if somebody else has solved it because you know, <laughs> sounds good. Either one, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you never Wonderful. know. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofi Lara. Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Varabioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.